Section 11 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7 The Second Protectorate of York and the Second Reconciliation of St. Paul's. Part 1. There was no more open war for two years. The kingdom enjoyed an armed peace. The credit for this must be given to the good king to his spirit of forgiveness and self-sacrifice. He showed himself willing to forget the past, and now that the Duke of Somerset was no more, to allow York to be his chief adviser. But the Queen looked further than this. In her eyes, York was the enemy of her husband and of her son. If the young Prince Edward was ever to reign, York must never be given chief power. She looked around for support, this she found not merely within the country, but in the court of France, from her relative, Charles the Seventh, and in Scotland, the Scottish king, James the Second, through his mother, Joan Beaufort, being a first cousin of the late Duke of Somerset, and a first cousin once removed of Henry the Sixth. The Duke of York, in the course of his career, had given Queen Margaret plenty of ground for uneasiness, but her determined and incessant opposition drove him further and quicker on the road toward resisting the crown. The Duke of Somerset was gone, but as long as the Queen remained, the Duke of York could never be at complete peace with King Henry. It is useless to speculate on what might have been. Margaret's suspicions appear to have been justified by the subsequent actions of York. Yet her suspicions and method of expressing them may have had something to do with producing those subsequent actions. After the king's return to London, the influence of the Duke of York was immediately felt in a change of ministry. There he made new certain officers, as one of the past in letters informs us on May 25th, three days after the Battle of St. Albans. The offices held by the late Duke of Somerset were divided. York became Constable of England, while Warwick, who had played a distinguished part at St. Albans, became captain of Calais. Thus one controlled all the forces of the crown inside England, while the other controlled the royal forces which were stationed outside the country. The Earl of Wiltshire, who had fled from the Battle of St. Albans, was superseded as treasurer by Lord Berkshire, whose brother was already archbishop and chancellor. Then the great men dispersed for a time to prepare themselves for the coming Parliament, which it was hoped would do much to settle the affairs of the nation. The King and Queen, with their young son, went to Hartford. The Duke of York found hospitality in the monastery at Ware. Warwick, taking his captives and the Earl of Dorset with him, took up his quarters at Hunston. His father, the Earl of Salisbury, at Rye. It is obvious the chief Yorkists did not mean to go far from London, lest some stroke should be attempted against them there. Three of Henry's servants were thought to have planned an assassination of York in the king's chamber, but when examined on this point, the men were able to clear themselves. Meanwhile, careful efforts were made by the Yorkist lords to secure the return of favorable members of Parliament. The Duchess of Norfolk, on behalf of her husband, wrote to John Paston on June 8th, requesting him to use his influence to secure the election in Norfolk of John Howard, a cousin of the Duke's, and Sir Roger Chamberlain. 
John Paston was only a private gentleman, and there could be little objection to his canvassing in the interests of the Duke's nominees. But he apparently took a more direct way and communicated with the under-sheriff himself, who was acting as returning officer at the elections in the county court. But after the elections were held, the under-sheriff informed him that the voting had been in favor of Master Burney, Master Gray, and Paston himself. Nevertheless, the Duke's nominees, Howard and Chamberlain, were the names returned on writs as Knights of the Shire, and they took their seats when Parliament met. The Commons chose for Speaker an active Yorkist, Sir John Wenlock. This Parliament had a checkered career. Its first session lasted twenty-two days, from July 9th to July 31st. One of the chief pieces of business that was done was to clear the memory of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, who died under suspicion of treason in 1447. As chief of the war party toward the end of the Hundred Years' War, he had been much opposed by the Beauforts and Queen Margaret. He was now publicly declared in Parliament to have been clear of any taint of treason. This curious and belated action of Parliament can have had no other cause at this time than a desire on the part of the victorious Yorkists to justify a great opponent of the Queen, and hence to show that their own opposition had a good precedent. Following this vindication of Gloucester's memory came a vindication of all who had lately fought against the King. A declaration was made on behalf of the Duke of York, and all the lords, knights, squires, archers, and the rest who had fought at St. Albans. Their innocence was established so that no legal action could be taken against any of them for deeds done in connection with the battle. The responsibility for the late troubles was put upon Edmund, Duke of Somerset, who was now dead, Thomas Thorpe, Baron of the Exchequer, who was now a prisoner in the Tower, and Sir William Joseph, one of the King's household. Time was also found to consider measures for the defence of England from its foreign foes, the French and Scots, especially the latter, whose king with the red face had this year besieged Berwick, although unsuccessfully. For a time it did not seem as if the peace of England was going to be any better kept in spite of this Parliament, for two great Yorkist lords, the Earl of Warwick and Lord Cromwell, disputed in front of King Henry, each one trying to shift the full responsibility for the fight at St. Albans upon the other. Poor Henry must have been puzzled by this argument, which struck him no doubt as an attempt on the part of the pot to call the kettle black. Lord Cromwell began to be afraid of his life, even in London itself under the king's peace, and by his own request he had himself shut up for safety in the house of the Earl of Shrewsbury for the Earl of Warwick and other great Yorkists were trusting to no peace, but were going about with their armor on and with their weapons, their barges which they used daily on the river between their houses and Westminster were full of weapons too. The king thereupon made a proclamation against the bearing of arms, but it is unlikely that the order was obeyed. The Yorkist lords were evidently afraid of a counter-revolution but they took a new oath of allegiance to Henry to show their loyalty. A week later, the Parliament was prorogued, July 31st. Less than three months afterwards, the King was again ill. 
the country, it is clear, had not been much quieter in respect of local troubles. The county of Norfolk, as the Paston letters show, was never quiet in the reign of Henry VI. But there is evidence from other counties, too. In Devonshire, in October, there was a very bad case of arson and murder. The Lancastrian Earl of Devonshire, Edward Courtney, had a quarrel with the Yorkist Lord Bonville. Accordingly, the Earl's son went one night with a band of men and set fire to the house of one Radford, a friend of Lord Bonville's. Radford was an old man, and when taken away he prayed that he might be allowed to ride, but they forced him to walk. Before he had gone an arrow shot from his house, his throat was cut. This was only one episode in the feud between the Earl of Devonshire and Lord Bonville. A little later the two noblemen with large forces met in a pitched battle near Exeter. There was some doubt about the result of the battle, but anyhow the Earl of Devonshire was able to plunder Exeter Cathedral. The strain of affairs had again been too much for Henry. He had probably never been quite right since the wound and the shock he received at the Battle of St. Albans. His malady was the same as had attacked him in 1454, although now it was in a less acute form. Anyhow, he was incapacitated from the task of government, and some form of regency or protectorship had to be arranged. The Parliament, which had been prorogued in July, met again on November 12th, and after the usual formalities, the Lords appointed the Duke of York to be protector. This position he held for the rest of the year, until February 1456, when the King again recovered his reason. This period, the Duke of York's second protectorate, and the ensuing time till the renewal of the Civil War, is a somewhat inglorious one for England. Three things are to be noted about it. Firstly, the King's peace really extended no further than the limits of the court, but within those limits the efforts of the King were not without effect. Secondly, local fights and disorders continued, riots in London and armed outbreaks in the counties. Thirdly, the frontiers of England were not safe. The King of Scots, James II, had repudiated a truce made in 1453, and although the English government threatened much, it did nothing. Worse than this, the French, having previously suffered so long from English invasions, were not now to be deterred from setting foot on English soil and plundering one of the sink ports. The second protectorate of York was too short to have much effect, but one thing is significant. The commons showed more zeal in procuring the appointment of the duke than did the lords. However, the king soon recovered, and the protectorate came to an end. Parliament had met again on January 14, 1456. It must have known that the king was in a fair way to recovery, for York and Warwick took the precaution of coming up to Parliament with 300 men in coats of mail and brigandines, although none of the other lords brought armed companies. By February 9th, the king was well again, but according to the terms of the appointment, York's protectorate did not necessarily come to an end till the king relieved him of it. Henry showed some inclination to continue him in office, not of course as protector, but as chief counsellor and lieutenant. But the queen, a great and strong-laboured woman, was not likely to allow Henry to do this. 
York was accordingly relieved of his office of protector and left without an official position. From this point, the condition of the government becomes one of drifting. The ordinary machinery of government had for long been greatly disturbed. The revenue was in a bad state. The good king was too easily prevailed upon, and the result was a kind of extravagance which it is always very difficult to stop. Extravagance not on himself, but in gifts to his friends or to charitable foundations. Accordingly, a bill was introduced and passed to the effect that the king should take back everything that he had given away since the first days of his reign. All honors, castles, lordships, villes, villates, manors, lands, tenements, wastes, forests, chases, rents, reversions, fees, farm services, issues, profits of county, presentations of priories, churches, hospitals or free chapels, and all other revenue, and what pertains to them. This act, though passed, could never be carried out. Its manifest injustice made it impossible. It would have made all property in England insecure, and would have put into the hands of the officials charged with its administration a power of extortion, blackmail, and personal maliciousness, which would speedily have provoked revolution. It will be remembered how the reduction office of Sweden two hundred years later became an engine of extortion and tyranny. Before Parliament was dissolved, the Earl of Warwick was confirmed in his position as Captain of Calais. This was the strongest point left in the Duke of York's position. The political history of England now becomes very scanty. The erudite historian of the period notices that for nearly two years, from January 1456 to November 1457, the records of the Privy Council are blank. Yet the result was better than might have been expected. The peace is well kept, wrote John Bocking to John Paston on May 8th, although there was trouble in London between the citizens and the foreign merchants. The different parties were watching each other. The king was sometimes in London, later at Sheen, then Coventry. The Duke of York was much at his castle of Sandal in the West Riding of Yorkshire. The queen, with the young prince, took up her abode in the castle of Tutbury, where Mary, Queen of Scots, was subsequently imprisoned, in Staffordshire, doubtless in order that she might be prepared for any movements of the Duke of York. The Duke of Buckingham, the faithful but not very vigorous supporter of the House of Lancaster, spent part of his time at Riddle in Essex, rather ill at ease, because the Londoners were so much of the party of the Duke of York. The Earl of Warwick knew better than to go to his command in Calais. For the next two months, May, June, he stayed quietly in the castle of Warwick. No doubt he kept his armor bright all the time and his artillery powder in a safe, dry place. So the parties were dispersed till the middle of the year. The Queen moved up to Chester, but York stayed on at Sandal, and he waiteth on the Queen and she upon him but he did not neglect his trusty citizens of London, the Earl of Salisbury and the two Birchier brothers, Chancellor and Treasurer, were staying there. About the middle of August, the King left London and met the Queen, and with them the whole court went on a regular and prolonged progress through the Midlands. After visiting various places, they settled at Coventry, and in October a council was summoned there. The Duke of York was not excluded, 
and there he came face to face with the young Duke of Somerset, a worthy successor of his father, and a determined and valiant opponent of York. Some changes were made in the ministry. Bishop Wainfleet of Winchester succeeded Archbishop Berkshire as Chancellor. The Earl of Shrewsbury succeeded Lord Berkshire as Treasurer. But these changes cannot be considered as inimical to the Duke of York. They certainly annoyed the King's strong supporter, the Duke of Buckingham, who was half-brother to the two Berkshires. Wainfleet was no partisan, and Shrewsbury was a Yorkist. The Duke of York, in fact, was on very good terms with the king, as indeed no one could help being if given a fair chance. But the queen did not tend to sweeten their intercourse. No doubt York was not very conciliatory to her. Indeed, had not the Duke of Buckingham exercised a timely influence, he might have stood in some danger at the hands of the queen's men. About the middle of October, the king with the court moved to Chester, Winter of this year, 1456, and spring of the next, were spent at one place or another in the West, with a view possibly to divert pleasantly the delicately balanced mind of the king. In February 1457 they were at Coventry again, where a great council was held, and a peace made between the Duke of Somerset and the Earls of Warwick and Salisbury, with whom the Duke had a family feud, on account of the death of his father at the Battle of St. Albans. In May the court was at Hereford, and the disorders of the march were temporarily quieted by the king's presence. In autumn the court moved back gradually to London, and a great council was held at Westminster, attended by all the great lords, including Richard of York. The proceedings chiefly concerned the trial of Bishop Peacock of Chichester for heresy. At the end of the month the council dispersed for Christmas, to meet again on January 27th. Thus the year 1457 closed in comparative peace. This happy and unusual condition of affairs must have caused much joy to the king, who would feel that his prayers had been answered. Now was the time to set a seal upon it by some public demonstration of concord. So the king resolved that the great council should meet again on January 26, 1458, in order that the magnates under his influence might arrange some mutual and final reconciliation. So the great men came up to London, one after another, not punctually, however, and with no great display of enthusiasm. Each nobleman showed his distrust of the others by bringing with him to town a hundred or so sturdy fighters, dressed in their lord's particular livery. The king, who had probably been spending Christmas at Windsor, came up to Westminster at the appointed time, and seems to have found very few there. This indifference and lack of common courtesy shown by the lords must have been a blow to Henry, finding himself thus treated as a man of no account. But the Duke of York, to his credit, was punctually at the appointed place, bringing with him, as a contemporary letter-writer rather quaintly says, his own household only, to the number of a hundred and forty horse. Evidently, a lord who brought only one squadron of cavalry was showing studied moderation. Anyhow, he was not shamelessly breaking the laws against livery and maintenance, if he called them all of his own household. The third greatest Yorkist, the Earl of Salisbury, Warwick's father, was there too, with no less than four hundred horsemen of the rank and file, 
and eighty knights and squires. Warwick, who had been at his post at Calais, would have arrived by this time too, but contrary winds delayed him. The Lancastrian lords seemed not so ready to appear. The Duke of Somerset was nearly a week late, January 31st, while the Duke of Exeter was not expected till the following week, coming with a great fellowship and strong. When at last most of the great lords had come together, the council was formally held, and the king made a speech on the subject of peace, reminding them at the end that God is charity, and that he who lives in charity lives in God, and God in him. And having made his speech, he retired with his household to the royal manor of Berkhamsted, so that untrammeled by his proximity, the lords might freely discuss the affair. The rich city of London was left with the lords and some thousands of armed and unscrupulous retainers. But the civic authorities, though anxious, knew how to take care of themselves and seemed to have organized a sufficient and competent police. The debates of the magnates progressed favorably. The king was near enough to be visited by lords who wished to confer with him. His desire for peace would not receive less attention because of the timely arrival of the Lancastrian Earl of Northumberland with three to four thousand people. These were not received inside the city, for the Londoners approved only of the Yorkist lords. The discussions seemed to have taken place not in the council chamber at Westminster, but in separate party conferences. The lords Yorkist, who lodged within the city, meeting at the Blackfriars, those Lancastrian who lodged within the city meeting at the Whitefriars in Fleet Street. By March 15th it was believed that sufficient agreement had been reached for the king and queen to come to London to celebrate it. The magnates offered to submit to his award, which was given on March 24th as follows. There were to be peace, love, and concord between everyone, and old scores were to be wiped away. In satisfaction of all animosities which had arisen out of the Battle of St. Albans and the troubles of that time, the Yorkist lords were to offer a certain compensation. On the one hand were named Richard, Duke of York, the Earl of Warwick, and the Earl of Salisbury, and on the other, Henry, Duke of Somerset and his widowed mother, Henry, Earl of Northumberland and his mother, John, Lord Clifford, and his brothers and sisters. Thus two distinct parties were recognized, the Yorkist party which had conquered at St. Albans, and the Lancastrian party whose chiefs had suffered death at that battle. The Yorkist lords were to wipe away the bitterness of those deaths by giving in perpetuity to the monastery of St. Albans forty-five pounds annually to be spent in masses for the souls of the Duke of Somerset and the Duke of Northumberland and Lord Clifford who were buried there. Further, the Duke of York was to pay over to the Dowager Duchess of Somerset and her son, the present Duke, the sum of 5,000 marks, that is, 3,333 pounds, six shillings, eight pence, from the wages which the Crown still owed him for his services in Ireland. The wording of the award seems to imply that Richard was to find the money, and the Crown would consider its own debt to him discharged. In the same way, the Earl of Warwick was to give Lord Clifford 1,000 marks from the wages which the Crown owed the Earl. The Earl of Salisbury, as his share of the compensation, was to pay back to the Earl of Northumberland, if he had already received them, 
the eight thousand marks which the latter had been adjudged to pay him in a lawsuit lately held in the sessions of Oyer and Terminer in the county of York. The parties concerned in this award were to enter into bonds in chancery for great sums as a guarantee that they would obey. Next day the great lords went with the king in a procession to St. Paul's to celebrate the reconciliation. The pious king rode at the head, clad in robes of majesty, happy in being the peacemaker of his people. The others, former enemies, followed arranged amicably in pairs, according to their rights of precedence, ranging from the queen, who came second, on the arm of the Duke of York. And all people were rejoiced to see the lovely countenance that was between them. When Charite is chosen with Stats and Stonda, steadfast and skilla with Utistounts, then wrath might be exiled out of this Londa, and God our guide to have the governance. Wisdom and wealth with all a pleasance, my richtful renya and prosperite. For love hath underlie the wrathful vengeance, rejuas anglonda uris loris accordete to be. This, the second great reconciliation at St. Paul's, the first was after the Duke of York's unsuccessful show of force at Dartford in 1452, marks the highest point in the two years' peace, or comparative peace, which followed the first battle of St. Albans. The king, having successfully finished this good work, was able to take his rest for a time. End of section 11